I am feeling better. Thank you. Okay. Um, now, Ray has told me that in order to put these classes on disk and it fits, that we, I need to cut it down to an hour. And so our new time is going to be an hour. Therefore, um, I'm not going to be able to do the class in the way that I used to do it. And, um, and so I'm not going to read every single word of the Parsha because it just it takes every bit of two hours, at least an hour and a half, to do it that way. That's the way I like to teach it, but it takes um, too long to do it that way. So this Parsha is Beshelach. Beshelach is um, a Parsha that is redemption in a nutshell. It is the picture of redemption. And I mean, it's especially um, special to me because this is the Parsha I told you before of my birthday. When I was born, this was the Parsha when I, you know, of the Hebrew date when I was born. And I found that kind of interesting because when I converted and I chose the name Miriam, I did not know that. It wasn't until years later that a rabbi in Israel told me that this was my Parsha from looking at the calendar. And so I was, I was uh, pretty thrilled by that. I mean, that Miriam was the name that just kept coming to me, and then here's the Parsha of my birth. <coughs> and you can see it's the crossing of the sea and dancing the sea and celebrating. And so um, it, it's a very special Parsha. And so because we're not going to do the whole Parsha, I want to kind of um, do the highlights of what the Parsha is about, and then I'm going to go into what I want to talk about. So first of all, the first thing that happens in the Parsha is that Moshe uh, finds the bones of Yosef. He finds the coffin of Yosef, and he brings the uh, coffin of Yosef so that they can take it with them because he has made the vow that he would do that. So that's the first thing that happens. And then the people leave um, Mitzrayim, and they're, they're headed out. It gives the, the uh, route that they take, and they're headed toward the sea. And it talks about, and we're told that they don't go the direct route, which would have been toward um, the Philistines, because the Philistines were very fierce fighters, and Israel has just come out of captivity. And so really they have a mentality of slaves. They're not warriors. Israel is absolutely not warriors at this point. <clears throat> and so now they're going toward the sea, and then when they get to the sea and their backs are to the sea, here comes Pharaoh's army. And so Pharaoh's army comes after them. And then the miracle of the splitting of the sea and the people go across on dry land. And then uh, Pharaoh and his obstinance follows with all of his army. And the, um, and the people are, you know, they're afraid. But then the sea crashes down on top of Pharaoh's army and they're all killed. And then comes the Song of the Sea, which is quite a quite long, and the way it's laid out is interesting. And the people celebrate, and um, and then it's uh, the the men are dancing, and then the women are dancing, and they're all singing, and that's um, about the Song of the Sea. And then the next thing that happens is that they come to the waters of Mara, which are called the waters of Mara because they are bitter. And they're complaining because they're thirsty. And so Moshe um, goes to Hashem and he tells him to take this wood and throw it into the water. And the water is sweetened. But interestingly, at the waters of Mara, the people are given <coughs> certain statutes. They're told here to keep Shabbat. This is where they're given the law of Shabbat. And also, let's see here. They're given the law of Shabbat. Establish the law and ordinance. See in verse um, 25. There he established law and ordinance for him, and there it tested them. And so what were these ordinances? And he says, if they would keep all of these, 
that the sicknesses of Mitzrayim would not come upon them, for I, Hashem, am your healer. And this is um, verse 26. And it's, and it's interesting how in English here it says, I, God. But in the Hebrew it does say, Yudhe <coughs> So, let me see here where it might talk about these ordinances. The sweetening of the of the waters. This is the first place where the people are given the law of Shabbat. And then after that, they go on to the place of the 12 palms. Let me see. Or the 70 palms, rather. They're going to the wilderness of Sin. And it's like an, a time of resting after they have been exposed to the... Um, the oh it is it's 12 palms and 70 12 springs of water and 70 date palms okay that's what it is after the waters of Mara comes this and then they journey on into the wilderness of Sin and they have the um, the experience of asking for meat and the quail are given to them the shlav and then after that and it's a whole ordeal with this and then after that Hashem sends the man the, the manna and um, and the people are given the manna and all of the all of the laws about the manna are given to them especially specifically about Shabbat <clears throat> and then they're told to keep a pot of the manna of the manna for um, a memory and then after this, the whole thing, um, they come again to a different place, Rufidim, and they don't have water again. And so they have a problem with the people complaining about not having water at Rufidim. And then the very last part of the Parsha is the battle with Amalek. Amalek of all the nations comes against Israel even though all the other nations have heard about what has happened and are afraid to attack Israel, Amalek is so, um, well, chutzpah, how do you say that? They're, they're like arrogant against Hashem. They have no fear of Hashem whatsoever. And so they come against Israel just because Israel has not provoked them, has not done anything, but just because they want to because they hate Israel so much. So, that's basically in a nutshell what the Parsha is about, point by point. Now, what I want to dwell on tonight is how B'Shalach is a picture of redemption. And so, I'm not going to be reading every single word, as I said. Now, one of the things that is a principle of what we see in the world is that there is a court of heaven and in the court of heaven are 70 angels around the throne of Hashem that are the root are the angels of the root nations of all the world all the nations are connected in some way to these 70 root nations and we see a picture of this in the Midrash about the the fall of Egypt now, when we talk about the, the traditional enemies of Israel, we talk about Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Those four enemies of Israel. And ever so often when people will hear about the traditional enemies of Israel, they will say, but what about Egypt? And the reason that Egypt is not included in that list is because, for all intents and purposes, Egypt was totally destroyed at the sea. And so you have a picture of redemption from, very, from the beginning, from the exile all the way to the end, where the enemy of Israel is completely destroyed, and then Israel is elevated to this place that Hashem wants Israel to be, where we're experiencing at Mount Sinai. The people of Israel experience basically where everything would go back to the way it was at creation they were elevated to where 
they would not die. They were perfect beings, but yet there was still a fall. Couldn't quite hold on to it. But that is the picture that we have from the very beginning to the very end, the very last of redemption. So, what happens in this life? What happens in our world when a nation is going to fall? And I want to share with you a midrash about this. Now, you know, you're very familiar probably with the story of Job and how um, the Satan, that the Hebrew, we, we don't really call him the Satan. We call him the angel Sam. His name is Samael. We don't normally say it. We say the angel Sam. And he is the adversary. He's the prosecuting attorney in the court of heaven. So you're familiar with the, with the story of Job and how this angel is at the throne of God. And he says, and Hashem is having a conversation with him. And he is not allowed to touch Job without the permission of Hashem. Okay, in the same way, there is justice in heaven. And what happens on in the world, what happens in this world on earth, first is played out in heaven. And we see this in the Midrash on the exodus from Egypt. <clears throat> so, there was this whole drama in the court of heaven. The angel of Egypt, or they call him, in some cases they'll call him the genius of Egypt, is named Uzzah. And he is also like the Uziel, was an, an angel of the dark, dark forces. And, the, and he was very connected to Bilaam. Now Uzi, Uzzah was the genius of Egypt. And when we think about these angels who are the ministering angels of the nations, we have to understand that Hashem created these angels with a job. And their job is to represent the best interests of their nation. And before a nation can fall, that angel is actually cast down. He represents that nation. And so, of course, he's going to try to argue the case of his nation because it is in his own best interest for him to do that. And you actually see another, uh, another place where there's a picture of this is in the book of Daniel. So Uzzah. The genius of Egypt came before God and said, Lord of the universe, you are said to be righteous and fair. You do not show favoritism. Why then do you want to drown my people? So the army of Pharaoh is coming after the people of Israel and the people in the court of heaven has decided that they are going to be drowned in the sea. So he said, this isn't, this isn't fair. Did my people drown yours? If it's because my people enslaved yours, then they were amply repaid when they took all the treasures of Egypt. Now you think about that and you think, now, wait a minute. Pharaoh commanded that the baby boys be cast into the river Nile. So, yes, the Egyptians did drown the Israelites. But this is the argument of Uzzah. He's kind of trying to do a... Uh, um, snow job here he's pulling a fast one God then assembled all the heavenly hosts and said I wish to answer Uzzah's complaint when the world suffered from famine it was Yosef who saved Egypt through his wisdom it was he who amassed great wealth by selling the grain that he had so judiciously stored away after Yosef died the Egyptians began to subjugate the Israelites when I sent my ambassador Moshe to warn Paro, he would not even recognize my existence. I sent ten catastrophes to punish the Egyptians, but still they stubbornly refused to let my people go. Finally, after the death of the firstborn, they released my people, but only out of fear. 
Now the Egyptians are trying to get my people back as slaves. Some have come intending to kill them because they have a real grudge against the Israelites that they have suffered so much because of these people. And so they say, forget bringing them back. We just want to kill them. Retelling the entire story of the subjugation in Egypt, Paro's repeated refusals to listen to his word and his present nefarious plans, God asked the assemblage, Is there any doubt that the Egyptians deserve to be drowned in the sea? The entire heavenly host replied, Your judgment is fair. Do as you have decreed. Seeing that his defense had crumbled, Uzzah said, Lord of the universe, I admit that my people are guilty, but I beg you to have pity on them. The heavenly host concurred. Rescue the Israelites, but do not exterminate the Egyptians. Upon hearing this, Israel's guardian angel, Michael, signaled his colleague, Gabriel, and both of them swooped down to Egypt in a single bound. In a wall they found a brick in which an Israelite infant had been crushed. Holding it in his hand, Gabriel stood before God and said, Lord of the universe, look what the Egyptians did to your children. At that moment, it was decreed that the Egyptians be drowned in the sea. Regarding this, it is written, You trampled your horses in the sea, the clay, mighty waters, in Habakkuk 3.15. Because of the clay that Gabriel brought before God, it was decreed that the Egyptian horses be trampled in the sea. One might ask, might question this account. How could Uzzah argue that the Egyptians had not drowned the Israelites? This appears to be a bald-faced lie. Pyro's first degree, decree against Israelites was that all the infant boys be drowned in the Nile. True, the children did not drown since angels rescued them, but Still, the Egyptians threw them into the Nile with the intent of killing them. Furthermore, why did God reply by telling in detail how Yosef had saved the Egyptians and had amassed great treasure for them? What had this to do with Uzzah's argument? First, it was a royal decree that the children be drowned. Therefore, the people could be considered innocent even though one must give his life rather than commit murder. And this is equally true for a Jew or a Gentile. One who murders in order to save his own life does not incur the death penalty. Now that's only for a non-Jewish person because even for a Gentile, for a, but because for a Jew, he may not murder even to save his own life. Furthermore, Paro's decree was against both Israelite and Egyptian infants equally because he was so afraid of this prophecy that there would be an infant born who would take over. He was afraid even of his own people. His own people's children were also drowned in the sea. Therefore, if there was any guilt, it was Paro's and his advisors. The general populace was relatively innocent. Second, Uzzah argued that the Egyptians had already been punished by losing the treasures to the Israelites. In God's law, a person cannot be punished twice for the same crime. It was for this reason that God related the entire story in such great length. First, he refuted Uzzah's second argument. When the Israelites had taken treasures of Egypt, this was not to punish the Egyptians. The treasure was rightly the Israelites, since it had all been amassed by Yosef. Even money, which was the Egyptians' own, was not really theirs, since Yosef had purchased them as slaves. Remember when they ran out of everything? They ran out of money. They owned nothing. They had nothing left but themselves. And they said, well, we'll die. And so just buy us as slaves so that we can live. So Yosef had purchased them as slaves. According to law, anything obtained by a slave belongs to his master. Therefore, all the treasure belonged to Yosef and his heirs. The law that one is not given two penalties for a single crime only holds true if it is indeed a single act. 
Thus, for example, a person who burns his neighbor's grain on Shabbat has committed two crimes by his act, violating the Shabbat and destroying property. Once he receives a harsher punishment for violating the Shabbat, he is exempt from any punishment for the damage he did. God, therefore, described in detail how the Israelites had been shepherds, how the Egyptians prevented them from following their traditional occupation and had enslaved them to make bricks and to build. If the Egyptians had beaten and killed the Israelites and then taken them them away from their usual occupation to make bricks, the tin plagues and drowning in the sea would have been sufficient punishment. But since the Egyptians initially enslaved them, they were also liable for monetary damages. They were There were two distinct criminal acts, each incurring its own penalty. When the Israelites took the Egyptians' treasures, they did so rightfully. First, the Egyptians owed the money for their work. Second, the Egyptians prevented them from pursuing their usual occupation as shepherds and thus made them incur monetary loss. The Egyptians also deserved to be punished for forcing the Israelites to make bricks without giving them straw. The Israelites had to search for straw, and then, if they did not complete their quota of bricks, the Egyptians would substitute their children for the missing material. So here is what the angel Gabriel brings, is this baby that's been crushed in a wall this Israelite baby before being liable for the capital punishment the Egyptians were liable for monetary damages thus the rule borrowing double punishment for a single crime did not apply to them although they had lost their treasures they still deserved to be drowned for killing the Israelites and drowning the children with respect to Uzzah's argument that the people had merely been obeying orders Gabriel produced the brick containing the crushed infant. This was clear evidence that the Egyptians had gone far beyond the orders that Paro had given to enslave the Israelites. Although Paro had ordered that Israelite children be drowned, he never gave orders for them to be crushed in buildings. For all these reasons, it was decreed that the Egyptians deserved to be drowned. So what happened was, that the Egyptians themselves started taking delight in this affliction of Israel. And they went far beyond the orders of Paro. And we see, whenever we look at the prophets, we also see this, where Hashem says in the book of Zechariah, He says, I was only angry a little bit, but you took it way too far. When He's talking to the nations about oppressing Israel when Israel is in captivity, when Israel is in um, exile. He says, you took it way too far. And here is a human example of this, where Paro was very cruel, and he, um, he had an agenda of oppression against the people of Israel. But the people of Egypt embraced that idea, that it was normal, and it was, it was a good thing. And so they themselves, all of them, all the country, all the people of Egypt, took upon themselves to inflict more punishment upon Israel. And we see this down through the years, because like I said, this is a picture of the redemption. It's also, when we look at Egypt, we see a picture of the pattern of oppression. And so for that, we see what happens where there's, um, the court of heaven is sitting on this. They're, they're sitting on a verdict of what shall we do to this nation. Because, and they're looking at each thing that happened. Okay, this was Paro's decision. But then his people took it further. And they did. They crushed the babies in the, in the wall. And Paro, yes, he told them to collect, to make bricks without straw. But the slave drivers were even more cruel because they made sure that they that the people could not work in teams, that they had to, each person, keep up his own quota. They had to individually go search for straw and make bricks. They couldn't, as a team, send part of the people to make, get straw and part of them be making bricks. They tried to make it difficult, as difficult as they possibly could. 
So they heard the, the order of Pyro, and then they, they took it to, like we would say, the nth degree. They took it. They multiplied it. They made it even worse. And so because of this, here comes the, the army of Pyro. And the army of Pyro cannot just plead, oh, well, we were just following orders in our hearts. We really did not mean it. And we would never have done it if it was just us. But we were just obeying our king. They could not plead that. And we see this picture here because so many times this is what happens. We saw it in the Nuremberg trials where over and over and over these people pleaded, I was only following orders. But the truth of the matter is when those stories would be told with all their gruesome details, they were more than just following orders. They were delighting in this cruelty, in the torture and putting people to death. They personally were taking great, you know, glee in it, great pleasure in it, like it was their own personal agenda. And this is exactly, exactly what Hashem was showing. He was showing it to the world through the plagues and what happened as a result of the plagues. And then it was being heard in the court of heaven. So that all of these things, the whole case, is being laid out. First it's being laid out in heaven saying, look at this. Here's the evidence. You can't refute this evidence. It's not just Para. It's not just the head, the leader of the country. It's also the individual people of the country who are guilty. And so we see this court and it's a court battle. And they, um, and they make this decision that yes, that the people of Egypt are, are, equally, are equally guilty. And so here they come. Now it's interesting when we look at the way that this is also laid out, that it talks about the, um, the route that the people take. And one thing I found very interesting as I went through it this year was the word, as we see this in um, chapter 14, and it's in verse 2, and then it says it again over here in, later, on in, uh, later on in these verses. And the, the term I'm looking at is Baalsiphon. And what this means in Hebrew is Lord of the North. And I hadn't ever really thought about this until I was thinking about it this time, this year. Because one of the other prophecies that we have, of course, in the book of, of Yehezkel, in Ezekiel, is that the, the hordes of Gog and Magog will come from where? The uttermost parts of the north. And so here are the people leaving Egypt, and it says they're facing they're facing the Lord of the North as they're coming out of Egypt and so this is a hint you know another hint of the picture of redemption in the picture of redemption so the people came out of Egypt and they were being followed by the Egyptian army and they just totally freaked out so what happened ahead of the people was the pillar of fire in the cloud. It was the angel going before the people as they're coming out, leading the way. That they shouldn't go by the way of the Philistines, because why? Thirty years earlier, when the when the Ephraimites thought that it was time to leave, they had gone that direction, and the Philistines had killed them all. And they had displayed their bodies, which is a gruesome thing but Hashem knew that and he did not want the people to be frightened by going that direction and seeing their brethren having, uh, being displayed like that so the pillar of fire the angel of Hashem leads the people and then when the, the army of Egypt is coming behind them at a full race to catch up with them this pillar of fire, the angel of Hashem, goes behind them. And so the pillar of fire is giving light to the people of Israel and the cloud is giving darkness to the, the armies of Egypt. So you had the same thing that you had in, in Egypt. 
of the plague of the darkness that the Egyptians are again in the dark and when we have the um, Haggadah on Pesach we're told that there were plagues also at the sea and this is a hint of this where the Egyptians were suddenly in darkness but what do they do? they're still trying to shoot at the people of Israel and so they shoot their arrows and they they throw their spears and it goes into this cloud and it's absorbed by this cloud they're not able to do any harm to the people of Israel and then the people of Israel what do they do and a lot of times when we read these things when we read that people panic when they, they cry out when they're afraid we say oh after everything they saw but we should think about this in a different way. We should not see this as a lack of faith. On the contrary, what we should see is here is a people who has their feet planted firmly on the ground. A very practical-minded people. They're not starry-eyed dreamers. They're a very, very practical people who looks at things in, a, in the nature, in a natural way, and they see a situation they say, well, I don't see any natural way of getting out of this. They don't count on miracles. And instead of seeing it in a negative light, what we ought to see is that this is a people who is so level-headed, so practically minded, and yet this is a people that accepted the Torah and it took upon themselves fully, and there you see the real faith, fully, because they are a people that's not going to be easily convinced they're not just starry-eyed dreamers, you know, um, light-headed people that are just like swept away by anything and everything. They have to be convinced. And once they're convinced, they stand at Sinai and they accept, they experience all of these wonderful miracles and they accept the Torah. This is a very, it, it speaks of the magnitude of the Torah, the magnitude of this experience that this isn't just some people that would be easily bowled over. And so here they are at the sea, and they are greatly frightened, and they cry out. They have every reason to be afraid, because they have experienced terrible things at the hands of the Egyptians. And here comes Pyro with his whole army, and they're, and they're running down upon them. They can hear the horses, they can hear the hoofbeats, they can hear the, the wheels of the chariots. And, the, and I mean, picture this. Paro has chariots. He has 600 chariots in his army. It's a, it is a large army of the day. It's like armored personnel carriers. It's like the armory that we would have in our armies. And it would be a large army. Paro had 600 chariots and they were all barreling down upon the people at this time. And so the people start to cry out. We would have been better in Egypt. Why did you make us leave? Why, why couldn't you just leave us alone and we would have served the Egyptians until we died? And then Moshe, he does not chastise them. He does not criticize them. Notice this. He doesn't criticize them for what they're saying because he understands why they're saying it he understands they're not just being crybabies he understands and Moshe himself had to be convinced I mean he had to do the journey too but he's already he's gone much much further than these people have but they're going to get there and he knows it so he says to them do not be afraid Stand firm and see the salvation of God, which he will work for you today. For the Mitzrites, whom you have seen today, you shall see them no, again no more forever. God will fight for you, but you must remain silent. So he's not telling them that they have to, you know, he's not saying close your eyes and believe, you know, all of this. He's just saying, just be quiet. You know, like, stop crying, just be quiet, and watch what God is getting ready to do. Now, notice that 
when um, then when he is told what he's supposed to do, the angel then he, then the angel goes to the back of the camp, and then what happens? Hashem tells Moshe what to do. He says, act, not to pray, but to act. And Moshe stretches out his hand over the sea, and he lifts up the rod. Of course, he lifts up the rod, but he stretches out his hand over the sea. And God brings a strong east wind all night and makes the sea split. The water split and the ground of the sea becomes dry land. And this is the miracle. And and what's also miraculous about it is think about the order in which it happens. The angel of God went before the camp of Israel. That went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved away from them and placed itself behind them. Then Moshe raised up his hand. And so the, the sea splits, not before an angel, not before even Hashem himself, actually, but before the people who have this faith. Because Hashem moves the angel to the back, in behind the people of Israel, so that, that the angel is going to be facing the army of Parah going to be between the people and the army of Paro and the sea splits before the people of Israel because Moshe is teaching the people part of the whole idea about redemption is getting the redemption mindset to get that idea in your mind not some starry eyed dreamy thing but the reality of who Hashem is and that He is our salvation and that He is true to His word. He made promises and this is the whole idea. This was where Israel was. This was what Moshe was, he was believing. They had it in them to do this. But he says, be quiet. Because he knows at this moment they they weren't really there. So he's leading them step by step by step They've gone through all this year of all these plagues, but now they're at the place where, as it says, the rubber meets the road. They have to really put this thing to the test. And so in front of these people, before their faith in Hashem, the sea splits, and they cross over on dry land. And the, the Egyptians, all of a sudden, they can see. The darkness is not is not dark anymore. They can see, and they see the people of Israel going out through the midst of the sea, that the waters of the sea are standing up on either side, and they have congealed. They are solid walls on either side of the people of Israel. And the ground itself is dry, and the people are going across the sea. And the people of Mitzrayim, the uh, the Paro, after everything he had been through, you would think that he would not dare go into that sea. But this shows how a person can be so hard-hearted, how he can be so obstinate, and his anger can be such a driving force in him that he doesn't even think. And he wasn't thinking. I mean, all this time he has been on the receiving end of Hashem's punishment. Ten times he has been slammed in Egypt. And now he looks out here at this water standing straight up. And he has no fear of Hashem. And he thinks he's going to go through that water the same as the Israelites. See, he knows that with every single plague that Hashem made a difference between Egypt and Israel. In the plague of darkness, the people of Israel had light. The people of Egypt were in darkness. You know, every single one of the plagues, the people of Israel were treated differently. When the Egyptians were drinking blood, the people of Israel had water. Every single one of these plagues, there was a difference drawn. But yet now he's looking at this water standing straight up, way over his head. And he has no fear. Why? Because he's so angry 
and he's so full of hate and bitterness his heart is so hard that nothing nothing can get in there and his own people have gotten the same way his army has gotten the same way and this is a picture this is a picture of the enemies of Israel who set themselves up to defy Hashem and say you know Hashem is on their side or or you know they make a, a different idea of what Hashem is and Israel is rejected and condemned and they say all of these things and so they think that it's okay for them to attack Israel and it's like and this is another another um, parsha, another pasuk another verse I mean from Zechariah where he talks about daring to touch the apple of his eye this is Jerusalem it's also the people of Israel that he has chosen these people for a purpose Paro was told that the people of Israel were chosen for a purpose and he was totally obstinate he did not care the people of the world are told Israel is chosen for a purpose and this purpose is also on behalf of the world and we saw this in Parshat Bo where Moshe says to Paro you give me sacrifices and this is kind of subtle but it's telling us something that even then Moshe is saying he was going to make sacrifices on behalf of Egypt that this was the role for Israel that Israel was supposed to be the priest for all the nations and this included Egypt so Paro has no fear and what happens when he gets out into this this uh, between the water the wheels of the chariots came off the horses got bogged down into the clay all of a sudden you know it was dry land for the people of Israel to walk across but all of a sudden when the horses get in there it becomes clay and they get bogged down and the wheels come off the chariots and they're going around and around because they can't you know they can't steer they can't maneuver and they're stuck there and then Hashem told Moshe stretch out your hand over the sea and the waters will come back over Mitzrayim over its chariots and its horsemen and Moshe stretched out his hand over the sea and the turn of morning the sea turned to its original position and the Mitzrites fled toward it and God spilled Mitzrayim into the sea and so here is a principle that we can see how when we fight a battle we hurl a missile at the enemy but when Hashem fights a battle he hurls the enemy toward the missile or toward that thing that's going to destroy them he do, he operates in a different way than we do and so the Israelites saw the great hand which God used upon Mitzrayim and every single time when we read about these battles the Haftor of this is the story of, De- of Deborah and how the, the people of Israel came together not everybody a few tribes and they defeated the army of Sisera and the army of Sisera had 900 chariots I mean it was a really huge army and so then the people sang praises to Hashem they were singing I will sing to God who is exalted how how exalted he has been the horse and its rider thrown into the sea God is my victory in song this was my salvation henceforth will will be my God to him would I be a habitation I will be his habitation my body will be his uh, temple he was already my father's God they, they learned about Hashem from their fathers but now they have a new understanding of who he is I will raise him still higher that their understanding of him has grown deeper and so they can raise him higher in this new revelation of who he is in the world God is a man of war God is his name that's um, Elohim is his name 
Pyro's chariots and his hosts he has hurled into the sea and chosen among his captains. The chosen among his captains were drowned in the sea of reeds, and the deeps covered them now. They went down into the shadowy depths like a stone. Thy right hand, O God, which has shown itself uniquely mighty in this display of force, thy right hand, O God, shall henceforth seize each foe with fright. In the abundance of thy majesty, thou smashest those that rise up against thee. Hadst thou not restrained thy wrath, it would have consumed them like stubble. And at the blast of thy insistence, waters indeed piled up. The flood stood back timidly like a wall. For the deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. And therefore the enemy said, I will pursue and I will overtake. I will divide the spoils. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword. My hand will reconquer them. And then bowed its blow thy wind. The sea covered them. They sank shadow deep like lead into mighty surging waters. Who is like thee among the gods, O God? Who like thee, uniquely mighty in holiness, feared in songs, proclaiming thy mighty acts, doer of wonders, thou stretchest out thy hand, the earth swallows them, and in thy loving kindness thou hast led to the goal the people that thou hast redeemed, with thy might which none can withstand, thou hast guided thy pe- them to thy holy habitation. Peoples have already heard and tremble. Pang like fear had already seized the inhabitants of, of Peleshet, the Philistines. But now the generals of Edom became dismayed. Trembling seizes the mighty of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan are melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them, and thy arm proves great. They fall silent as a stone. Until thy people pass over, O God, until this people pass, passes over, which thou hast acquired, them in the mountain of thine inheritance. Thou broughtst them home and plantest them in the mountain of thine inheritance, the place prepared for thy habitation, which thou, O God, hast secured, the sanctuary, O God, which thy hands have established. So you know that they're going there to build a temple. God will reign for all eternity. So this is the recounting of everything that has happened. This is the building of faith in the people. That after everything that they've experienced, that here is the building of their faith, so that they um, they relive it, they retell it. This is a, a song that they're being taught. A lot of times, this is the way that people will recall things. That it's in you'll you know like um, in ancient times, like the the bards, the bards. And they would um, they would sing songs that became into the the memory or the psyche of the nation. <clears throat> For the horse of Pyro and his chariot and with his riders came into the sea, and God brought back the waters of the sea over them. The sons of Israel walked on dry land in the midst of the sea. And then after the men had sung. I mean, the men were singing, and then the women also sang, and they sang. Of course, they sang and uh, separately, and they and they danced. They danced kind of this marching dance to um, praise Hashem in dancing and singing. So, this is also part of redemption. That the people of Israel are suppo- are experiencing the salvation of Hashem that is miraculous. That God is a God of war. This is in the song of the sea. God is a God of war, a man of war. God is a man of war. And that the enemies that come against Israel are going to be defeated. And like I said in the beginning, the four traditional enemies of Israel do not include Egypt and the reason they don't include Egypt is because these four enemies of Israel have never been completely dealt with Egypt has Egypt was from there the beginning to the end with the four traditional of the enemies of Israel I mean in fact the um, with Rome 
the exile of Rome is still still exists. We're still in the exile of Rome. But with the other exiles, what happened was it just ended that Israel was released. It came out of Babylon, came out of Persia. Actually, Persia defeated Babylon and took Egypt. I mean, uh, took Israel. And so then Israel came out of Persia, rebuilt the temple. Then Greece was more an internal um, exile. And the people did, there was a battle and Greece was defeated, but then they just withdrew to their own land. And so the traditional enemies of Israel, these four, have not been dealt with in the same way completely the way Egypt has. And that's why Egypt is not included with them. That in the end of days, with the war of Gog and Magog, that these also, these four enemies of Israel, will be dealt with in the same way. That all of the enemies, all of the nations that have um, done certain things to Israel, like the Holocaust, are, are going to be judged and they're going to be dealt with in a similar way to Egypt. After the army of Egypt was destroyed in the sea, Paro, all the army of Egypt was destroyed in the sea, essentially Egypt ceased to be a power to be reckoned with that it had been before. It had to do a lot of regrouping, a lot of um, and it was very vulnerable then to attack. And so Egypt underwent a real change. Now I don't know a whole lot about the history of Egypt, but Egypt underwent a real change. And somebody recently asked me, but Egypt has been involved in recent wars. And you have to understand something. Egypt of today is not the people of Egypt of the Exodus. Egypt of today is actually an Arab country. And the people of the Exodus, during the uh, time of the Exodus, Egypt was not an Arab country. It was a Hamite country. And so those people, Paro, all of the people of Egypt, were not the same people that we see today. I mean, there are some people who were related to them, but the power of Egypt of today is Arab. And so it's not the same. So this is a lot for us to think about. Especially, and it has a lot to do with the, um, with the nations. It has a lot to do with B'nai Noach. Because we can see the pattern here that is laid out in this Parsha of how redemption is going to work. And, and it can be very, very exciting that, you know, there is a lot of talk against the, uh, the Arab Rob, the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt with Moshe. But, on the other hand, in a positive light, there were people, Egyptian people, including the daughter of Paro, who had rescued Moshe. She was considered a very righteous. She was a convert to Judaism, and she was considered very righteous. And she was one of the Egyptians that came out of Egypt with the people of Israel. And she was, um, her name was Batia. And she is considered one of the righteous women of Israel as they came out of Egypt. And so, it's not so chauvinistic, you know, so closed, that none of the people of the nations matter. Absolutely not. In fact, our very next Parsha is called Yitro. And this is named for a non-Jewish man, um, Moshe's father-in-law. And we see that he is a man who has a lot of wisdom. And that was honored by Hashem. So, that's the point. That redemption is not strictly for the people of Israel and nobody else. Redemption is for all of the world. And for Israel to be able to take the place that Hashem meant for Israel to take. And we'll see that as we go through as we go to the Parsha that talks about the giving of the law, that Israel was created to be a nation with a specific 
purpose, with a specific job, a role to play for all the nations. And, uh, and all of the nations have a place. Each one has its own place. So does anybody have any questions? And if you would like to use the microphone, please feel free and I will release the mic to you. I always wondered how the people of Germany would be dealt with for what they did in World War II to everyone because the people did bad things to the Jewish people as did Egypt. Right, and if you stop and you think about it, Germany was never really punished for that. I mean, a few people were put on trials in Nuremberg and hung, like 10, but and a lot of people, you know, a lot of them went, went to prison for a long time and so on. But there was not really the punishment in Germany that requ was required. Considering the fact, considering what they did, Germany really was not punished for that. So much so that now we have Holocaust deniers. And we have... Um, People who just say, oh well, you know, because justice was not served. Not yet. But the story isn't over yet. And they will be dealt with. Germany will be dealt with for what they did in World War II as a nation. But we have to remember something too as we say that. That just like there were people from Egypt who were righteous people, like, like Batya, there were people in Germany who also will not be dealt with the same way as the nation itself. They will be dealt with as individuals who are righteous, who, who maybe took terrible chances and stood up for, um, for people, hid people. You know, there were these stories. Okay, let me write that down. Russell, October 16th, and I will get back to you on that Parsha, okay, Russell, because I don't have, um, I have to look it up, okay? Do you think that the modern nations, who do you think the modern nations of Gog and Magog are? Okay, now, <clears throat> a lot of times when you have this, um, the Christian prophecy has always wanted to say that this was Russia. And sometimes you can kind of think, well, that sounded really pretty good. Um, but if you take the, the Hebrew of Gog and Magog and you do the Gematria and you include the Vav, Gog U Magog, the Gematria comes out to 70. Now, if you were to be told 
Gog and Magog is 70. Who do you think they are? And it talks about coalitions. I would say the UN. Because that's a representative of the nations. And when we see all of the wars that are going on now, it's coalitions, it's with UN presence, it's representing the UN, on and on and on. We see this. I guess the first time we really started to see that, not like we are now, but the first time was in Korea, wasn't it? Wasn't there UN presence in Korea? But I'll tell you, when we were in, in Israel, and um, in the first Gulf War, I mean, there was all this talk about coalition. And the United States was spearheaded this coalition of nations in Iraq. And, um, and I said, well, here we go. Here's a dress rehearsal for Gog and Magog. Now, here's another interesting little point. Now, you could take this with a grain of salt. Whatever. In Yemenite Hebrew, a, a gimel is pronounced with a z sound. And so if you have gimel gimel with an o in the middle, like o, o what, how would you say that? Gog would be zhuzh. Isn't that interesting? And in Hebrew, when you have a prefix of mem, it means from. So you have zhuzh mezhuzh. And what does that make you think of? Well, what do you think of when you hear, like, judge? Right. George and from George, son of George. And the first Gulf War was spearheaded by George. And now the second one is from George. <laughs> so... It's kind of um, an interesting play on words that you're, you're thinking, oh, this cannot be a coincidence. It's, it's kind of funny, but, but it's uh, kind of chilling, too. And then we had this whole idea of one world power. Uh, the uh, New World Order was this phrase that did not come into the uh, public consciousness until George Bush Sr., started saying it. Think about that. That it was George Bush Sr. that began saying that. So, and another thing that's really interesting too is that Babylon was in the area of Iraq. That was Babylon. Now, Saddam Hussein claimed, and I don't know, I, I've, I've had some thoughts about this too. He claimed that he was the reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar. So all of these things are playing out. And in the, in the Zohar, one of the prophecies of the Zohar is that in the last days, all the enemies and friends of Israel from history would reincarnate and they would be powers in the world in the last days. They would be um, rulers and powers. So, it just kind of makes you think. It's an interesting, you know, all of these little pieces of the puzzle present a very, very interesting picture. When you start putting them down and seeing all of them put together, they present a very interesting picture. And we can go back, like I was saying, from the very uttermost parts of the north I mean, when we were in Israel, and the the thing that started really pushing this ahead came from Norway. And I look at the map of Norway. Norway, well, there are um, 
a few countries that go way into the north, but only a few. Norway, of the Scandinavian countries, is, goes into the furthest part of the north. Russia, Canada, and America, with Alaska. Four nations go into the uttermost parts of the north. But Norway, and people said, oh my goodness, Norway, Norway was never anything. But it was. I mean, the Vikings were a pretty scary group of guys. So, <clears throat> they were very pro-Arab, the um, modern Norwegians that, that hatched the Oslo Peace Accords were are pretty um, pro-Arab, pro-PLO. So, all of these things were are are the little pieces that come together, and you start seeing start seeing a pattern of things going on. So, do we have any other questions or comments? I was very interested when I started thinking about that um, Baal Tzaphon, that it was talking about the Lord of the North, even here in our picture of redemption, that there's that element of the North. Yes, I think that was great, that we could get a lot in in an hour. Okay, um, I'm not really sure when the next class, when um, that next class is going to be starting, what day. But um, it should be either toward the end of um, February or the beginning of March. So just um, I'm going to say good night to you, and then I'll come right back.